everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast of a bunch of writers sitting around drinking tasty beverages and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your hosts today are Chaz and Karen Brinjley and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 124, Zombies Need Brains, and so does Josh Palmatier. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to say it precisely that way. You are a very brainy guy, Joshua. You have a PhD in mathematics and you teach in everything, right? I pretty much do, yes. I got the PhD basically the same semester that I sold the my first trilogy to Daw Books. So it was a it was a hefty semester. <laughs> How did you find time to get a PhD and write a trilogy? This is well of sorrows, right? <laughs> No, this one, this was actually the uh, Throne of Amonpour trilogy. The writing is what kept me sane while I was attempting to uh, get the PhD. So I I more or less started the first book of the uh, Throne of Amonpour series. At the same time, I started the PhD. (laughs) And it took me a good six years to uh, write the the Skewed Throne and then revise it a couple times and stuff like that. But uh, it, it was a very good way, since it was fantasy, it was a very good way for me to take a break from the mathematics. So when the mathematics got a little bit too intense, mm-hmm. then you know, I would take a break and I would uh, work on the writing. And then uh, when I felt like I'd recovered, I would go back to the mathematics again. So if it took you six years to write the trilogy, uh, how long did it take for the PhD? Uh, the PhD was six years. Six years. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Because when I went back, when I started PhD, I already had my uh, master's and uh, they said, you know, when I went for the interview, they said, you know, we don't know where to put you because you already got your master's and everything. And I said, well, I've forgotten everything about the master's. So I just want to start scratch. (laughs) So So it took me a couple of years longer to get the PhD because I had had a break that, you know, I just want to start over where uh, the master's students would start, so. Are you saying that if you don't use differential equations every day, they start to slip through your fingers? Because I believe that. Uh, Yes, not just differential equations, any mathematics. If you don't use it, it it walks away. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like you're talking about the quadratic formula. Thank you, thank you, (laughs) quadratic formula. So there's a question of, do you get to use any obscure math jokes or concepts in your writing, or do you keep them firmly separated fantasy versus, because I don't know, when I was, I read your Shattering the Lay, at least the first two of it, and I'm eagerly reading the third one, there could technically be a lot of hidden math in that. Oh, yeah, there, there's, um, well... I, I played uh, a little fun in the Thrones series because I had my main character hate mathematics. <laughs> so, but remember, I was going for the PhD at the time. So, well, that seems fair. Yeah, it was. It was probably a little bit of of, of uh, stress relief by putting that in there. But uh, but yes, I think if you follow all of my novels up to this point, I. I seem to be trending more and more toward fantasy that is mathematically based in some ways. I didn't create the ley lines and design that world specifically with any kind of mathematics in mind, but there is certainly a mathematical 
structure behind it. And, you know, if you, if you get to the end of book three, you can see that there, there's certainly a structure of at least science behind it. I wouldn't say mathematics necessarily, but there, but there's, there's, you can see the science poking through. <laughs> well, there was a lot of conservation in it too. Sort of the idea that just because you can do something to manipulate energy in a new way, is it a good idea to do that extreme manipulation? What does it do to natural resources? Can natural resources strike back? So there was a lot of, I think, modern world challenges just within your so-called fantasy setting. Yeah, and that was that was the intent. Shattering the Lay series is is I wanted I wanted to address obviously kind of like mimicking our abuse of the oil resources in our own world and stuff. But of course, it's a fantasy world, so. <laughs> Fracking, cough, cough. Yeah, so so I said we were abusing uh, ley lines, and uh, so yeah, that was kind of kind of the genesis for the lay series. And I wanted at that time I wanted to write a fantasy series that had a very modern flavor to it. And uh, so you know, the lay lay series was the result of that. The series that I'm currently writing right now. It's called the Crystal Cities series. It was even further than the ley lines. I actually have mathematics built into the magic system of, uh, of the world in the Crystal Cities. So, so I'm certainly trending more and more toward more like scientific fantasy, so to speak. <laughs> awesome. That's just awesome. Just so I have a story coming out next month called A Bayesian Theory of Wishes coming out in Parsec next month. And so you can put math into just ordinary fantasy, you know, Bayesian theory, I think is magic itself. So, you know, I, you know, I loved the Witcher. If you go back and read the original books by Andre, I can't pronounce it. So sorry out there. Um, they took it. He made modern political science into a fantasy novel and it was freaking brilliant for it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, I like this habit of taking something that people can relate to and understand because instead of just memorizing all new, I need, I need to get new geology and a new this and a new that, and, and we're not going to explain it. I really like anchoring fantasy into something that's relatable, that's there. Well, I don't know how mathematics is relatable to everybody, how much mathematics is relatable to everybody. But, they don't want uh, to know how much math you know, runs their life, especially statistics. But <laughs> Yeah, but, but going back to like the Bayesian theory that you mentioned, the, in, in the Crystal Cities series that I created, I literally took the algebraic structure that I uh, wrote my dissertation on and I use that algebraic structure as the magical structure in my world. So it, it's there's basically like a, <laughs> to use the math term, one-to-one -one correspondence between the mathematical structure and then the magical system in the world. So uh, perfect. The odds of Karen enjoying it, therefore, are one. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, I'm starting it tomorrow. Now, I love your small press company, Joshua, the whole that it's called jo Zombies Need Brains LLC and science fiction and fantasy themed anthologies. Tell us a little bit about how did you just decide that you were going to run a small press? A funny story. I decided I wanted to try editing an anthology. This kind of came about because 
we had a group of uh, writers that did like a group signing at like Barnes and Noble and stuff. And then after the signing, we all got together at a, a bar, of course. And, uh, you know, we were drinking and, and celebrating the signing and all that. I brought up the idea of anthology about a bar. Then Patricia Bray was there and she said, oh, you know, it should be a time traveling bar and then yes. it should be bartended by Gilgamesh. And so I said, you know, oh, this is a pretty cool idea and we should all be in it. And everybody laughed and laughed. And then uh, I'm sure everybody went home and forgot about it. Except for me, uh, I went home and wrote up a proposal for it. And I sent the proposal to Techno that they were the sort of anthology producing company uh, used by DAW. And they pitched it to DAW and DAW bought it. So that's how I got started with the whole idea of editing. What happened after that? So, I, so Patricia Bray and I edited the After Hours anthology for DAW. And then we uh, edited the Modern Phase Guide to Surviving Humanity. Which and is another great title, by the way. Yeah, that was, that was a Patricia Bray title, actually. We edited that one for DAW. But then there was a big shakeup in the publishing uh, industry. One of the consequences was DAW cut back their six to eight anthologies a year down to one, maybe two. And so Patricia Bray and I were like, okay, we'll, we'll wait it out and see if they bring the line back. Basically after, I think it was three years, I finally said, well, it doesn't look like they're bringing the line back. So if I want to continue editing, I, I'm going to have to do something about it myself. So I sat down that summer. Unfortunately, it was a summer I didn't have to write a book. Um, and so I was bored. And so I sat down, uh, basically figured out how I would start a little small press uh, of my own. You know, I wanted it to have a name that evoked science fiction and fantasy and also was, you know, kind of humorous, you know, because I was basically doing this just for fun. And so that, that, that's how we ended up with the Zombies Need Brains uh, title. I, I figure it scream sci-fi fantasy, but it also sounds fun. Well, could have been, you could have a horror in there too. It really kind of goes for a little bit of everything. Yes, we're, um, we're we are interested in horror. We, most of our anthologies have had a usually at least one story in them that kind of trends a little more toward the horror side. But we actually plan on doing some uh, horror anthologies uh, in the future. So it just hasn't come up yet. Feeling bad about my battery is low and it's getting dark because I followed Sarcastic Rover enthusiastically on Twitter. And that <laughs> final tweet was just heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. That's how the um, anthology My Battery is Low and It's Getting Dark came about is because, you know, it was, that, that, that was a very, I guess, emotional time uh, with the, the rover. And so I was like, you know, we should do an anthology, but I wanted to turn it around. So the anthology is supposed to be about old technology, you know, past its prime, finding, finding new life. So I, I didn't want, you know, a depressing, sad anthology, uh, which is, which emotions that were evoked by that uh, situation, I said, well, let, let's take that situation, turn it around. You know, if we, if we get back to Mars at some point, we actually uh, land humans on Mars. I'm assuming that we will perhaps find some use for all of these rovers that have been abandoned there. One can hope because they did represent hope for a lot of us, you know, wandering around. There's, there's chance out there. There's life, yes. even if it's robot life. Yes. Yeah. So can you talk a bit, Joshua, 
about the financial model that you use for Zombies Need Brains? Because I, I don't know if it's, if it's unique and I don't know if you came up with it, but it, it's, it's unusual. Um, well, I didn't model it after anything, so I, I came up with it on my own. But I'm not saying that I'm the first one that ever did it. it it's somebody I'm assuming somebody out there probably did something uh, relatively similar to it. But the, but the idea was when I sat down and said, okay, if I'm going to start a small press and try to put an anthology out on my own, you know, how am I going to do this? So I said a Kickstarter was, was uh, taking off at that time, like, and, and crowdfunding in general. There were a couple other platforms like uh, Indiegogo and stuff. So I was like, okay, well, crowdfunding seems to be a good way to go because I don't have money. So I can't, I can't fund it all myself. So I need to get the funds from somewhere. So, so the crowdfunding seemed to be the best option. And so then I said, okay, well, I personally don't have enough friends and relatives enough to fund a professional level anthology, you know, because I, I, one of the things that I decided right off the bat was I'm going to pay the artists professional amount. I'm going to pay the writers a professional amount. I, I, I wanted the whole thing to be very professional. So I said, in order to raise that amount of money, I pretty much had to do some kind of uh, crowdfunding uh, or fundraising in some way. I sat on the crowd, but I didn't. I don't have enough people uh, in my life to uh, to fund an anthology on my own. So I said, well, how am I going to get the backers for this? So I came up with this model. I fill half of the anthology with uh, what I call anchor authors. These are going to be, you know, professionally published people with, you know, their own fan base. The hope was that with like seven or eight anchor authors attached to each anthology, that we would have enough of a fan base that we would get enough backers to get funded. I mean, I suppose I could have gone at it and said, well, let's just do all anchor authors. But one of my goals with when I created the uh, small press is that I wanted it to be an outlet for new voices. So I, I decided pretty early on that, you know, I wanted to do open calls for these anthologies. So I needed, I, I decided that doing half and half was a good way to go. So half anchor authors and then half an open call. That way it kind of satisfied all of the things that I wanted to do with a small press if I created it. So that that's the model I set up. And, and so far it seems to be working fairly well. I think the the Kickstarter we just that just ended, where we funded three more anthologies, I think those are the 20th. 21st and 22nd anthologies for Zombies Need Brains. I'm pretty sure. That's great. That's great. Yeah. So uh, it seems to be working. So I'll, I'll uh, maybe tweak it in the future somehow, but I, I don't really have any idea how I'd tweak it at this point. I, I like the ruthlessly business-like approach of going after that. There seem to be folks that look at these things in many different ways of, well, I'm just going to be creative. I'm, it is still a job and it is still a, how do you get everybody paid and get it all together? So I really love that you went and learned the business side of it so that you could create, get together, get a quality project. You know, I like the idea of anchor names plus new people. So just Bravo all the way around. It's a, it looks like a great enterprise. And I think I've, I think I read one of them. I think I read all hail our robot conquerors. Yes. Yeah. That was one of our earlier ones. <laughs> six or seven or something like that. But yeah, I, I mean, I literally 
when I decided I was going to do this, I probably had been thinking about it and trying to figure out how it would work for like a year. So I, 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 you know, I did the research on how do I set up an LLC and how much money I would need for printing and how much money I'd need for the, to pay the authors and the artist. I mean, I, but then I'm a mathematician too. So, you know, yeah. numbers are my thing. <laughs> and are you, do you put one of your own, do you have a chance to write one of your own short stories in all of this? And, or are you sticking with mostly being a novelist or how do you feel about the difference between short stories and novels? Well, there's a huge difference. First of all, strictly a novelist anymore. If, you, if you'd asked me maybe 10 years ago, I would have said, no, I don't write short stories. I, I only want to write novels. But I got invited to a couple anthologies early on. So I wrote a couple short stories for those. And, and in the process, I realized that there is a huge difference between the novels and the short stories. So it took me kind of stopped writing short stories after a couple of those because I realized I wasn't good at it. Huh. And, and, and well, I mean, the writing is fine. I mean, obviously at that point I probably had six novels out there. So, so I knew how to write. The problem was, is I hadn't yet figured out what you needed in order to write a short story. I, I was still basically writing as if I were writing a novel. So I spent a lot of time reading a lot of anthologies. Uh, this is as I was thinking about setting up the small press. So I spent a lot of time reading anthologies, working with other people on short stories. And I kind of, in the process of working with zombies, the, you know, for five years or something like that in a row, I kind of taught myself what it, you needed for a short story. So now I feel more comfortable with short stories and I have been writing a lot more short stories recently in the last, like, I don't know, two, two or three years. So I'm, I'm putting out more short stories now and I'm making time for uh, writing short stories in my schedule. I haven't really written short stories for my anthologies specifically. I'm going, going more the old route where I write the short story and I send it out and get collect lots and lots of rejections. <laughs> no, I'm, I've got my little list of places I would like to break into. So, you know, I'd like to break into Uncanny and I'd like to break into the magazine of science fiction and fantasy, you know, so I've got my little list. And stuff. so, uh, so that's what I'm working on now, but that's been more of a recent development and I'm still working on novels, of course. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's, it's interesting that Editing should have led you to writing short stories. Do, do you actually enjoy the editing? Oh, yes. I, I, wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't be continuing to do this if, if I didn't enjoy the editing. I love reading Slush Pile. Uh, it's, you know, when, when we started, we were getting like 100 submissions per anthology, maybe, you know, through the Slush Pile. And stuff. Mm -hmm. now, now Zombies is well known enough that, you know, for... A particular anthology, we might get 500 or 600 submissions. So it's required a lot more reading recently than it used to. But but I love reading the stories and I love trying, you know, I love finding those those stories that are like perfect fits for that theme or or the really interesting takes on the theme that I hadn't considered, you know, the, those little surprise gems. Or do you ever say this doesn't fit, but now I want to do a different anthology with it? <laughs> oh, yes. That's where Submerged came from, actually. I was reading 
don't even remember what the story, there was a story submitted to a previous anthology and I was reading it and I was like, well, this doesn't work for this anthology, but it's kind of a cool idea. And eventually that little nugget kind of uh, developed into the whole surged theme, which is, you, you know, short stories set significantly anyway, underwater. And so I, it, was, it was basically a, a story where, uh, it's it's basically the cover of submerged it's a, it was a story set underwater and and these divers went underwater and found this temple underwater and i was like this is a really cool image uh in my head and that author submitted to submerged too unfortunately didn't make the final cut for submerged but whoa i was going to ask if you've gone back to the author to ask for that story for the for submerged uh, I didn't have to ask. When, once we did the open call, they uh, they had they resubmitted that story to us uh, merged, but oh. it didn't, didn't make the cut. There, I, I want to tell people out there that when we read the the slush and stuff, I mean, you're you're competing for like seven to ten slots in in an anthology, and we read a lot of really good stories that that in the end just don't don't make that final cut for various reasons, like. I mean, I, I've had really, really good stories that I absolutely loved, but at the end we didn't take them because the way the anthology, the the atmosphere of the anthology, it just didn't work uh, with that uh, atmosphere. Because for a themed anthology, in the end, it's not just really a bunch of, of stories that you've thrown together. They The stories all ha- kind of have to work with each other a little bit. So... I mean, we, we end up rejecting really, really good stories that, that just didn't fit the tone or uh, in the end for that anthology, or, you know, they were just slightly off of theme enough that uh, in the end we said, okay, well, we can't really take this because it's just a little too far outside the theme. And, and so, so basically the, the whole point of this is we end up rejecting a lot of really good stories. So you can't take a rejection from us as meaning anything except that it just didn't quite work for us for that particular anthology. Right. And you always edit with somebody else because I, you certainly all the anthologies from zombies that I've seen have two names on the cover. Um, yes. One, uh, I do that on purpose because I feel that having two editors on an anthology is better because you're getting two different tastes. And if you can mix the two different tastes together, you're going to build an anthology that appeals to more people. So like for basically any of our anthologies that we put out, at least that I've been an editor of, the, there's always, in the end, there is always one or two stories that my co-editor absolutely loved and I was kind of just ho-hum about. And uh, vice versa, there's usually one or two stories where I was like, that this has just got to be in there. The co-editor was just kind of ho-hum about it. I kind of, I kind of want that to happen because not everybody's going to like my taste. You know, it's my taste. (laughs) It's our taste. So uh, so are there any... Are there any trends in particular that you would say, oh, dear God, please don't send us any more of X? (laughs) I know know some uh, other like magazine outlets out there and stuff have like a little list of things like, you know, don't ever send us. I think Clark's World says don't ever send us a zombie story. You know, we don't (laughs) have any zombie stories ever again. 
I don't have a list like that because there's bound to be something out there that if I if I gave a restriction like that, there is bound to be a story out there that is a spectacular story that fits that restriction or whatever. And then I'm never going to see that story because I put this little little restriction out there. So so Zombies Need Brains doesn't have anything that we say you can't submit. We do not like to read anything that's gratuitous, gratuitously violent or gratuitous sexual or anything that's obviously just blatantly porn, stuff yeah. like that. Um, you know, it doesn't always have to be porn. We could say, can we not mention a girl's boobs or butts in the first page and a half? <laughs> uh, yes, yes. I mean, if, I, I will say that, you know, a story like that, you're probably going to get rejected pretty much based on the first page. You can, uh, I never used to believe this, but I believe it now. You can literally decide whether you're going to enjoy or not enjoy a story within. There is, there is that, uh, there is truth to the idea that if you, if you do not have a good first page, you're probably going to be rejected. <laughs> I, I never used to believe that, but I, I read enough now that I can, for the most part, predict, you know, where every story is going within the first page or two, typically. So let that let that be a gauntlet for everybody out there who wants to submit to Zombies Need Brains. Yeah, it, it, yeah. It, our interest in the first page or two. If you haven't caught our interest in the first page or two, then mentally we have more or less already rejected you. <laughs> How is that? How is that different to how you approach then when you were doing novels? Novels can be slower starting. Novels can be a kid picking his nose sitting by the side of a dusty road is an opening, but it doesn't go well, into a short story. Yeah, generally, if I were reading novels for acceptance or rejection, zombies doesn't do novels, but if I were, then... I, I would give a little more leeway for a novel, but it, it's probably got to happen in the first chapter because there has to be there has to be something in that first part that makes your world or your character or your magic system or your science or whatever. There has to be something that makes it stand out. If I can read the first chapter and it feels like every other fantasy out there, then I'm, I'm probably not going to be reading a whole lot longer. It, it, and the same is true for the short story, except that you've got a page or two to bring in that, that thing that is unique about your particular story or your particular world. And, that, and that's what's missing. If I, can, if I can get through the first couple pages and I can't mentally say, oh, well, this is cool or something like that, then the story is probably not going to be accepted in the long run. And now that you've edited over a thousand stories, how does it change how you edit yourself? Well, one thing is that I've gotten much better at first draft. I, I can say now that my first drafts are much, much cleaner than they used to be. I don't have to, I end up editing myself while I am writing, even though technically on the first draft, I'm trying to be, you know, like only creative. Uh, that's not, not true anymore. I, I, yes, I'm trying to be creative, but I have trained myself to edit without, I guess, mentally editing, not consciously editing. 
because when I go back to, you know, revise my first drafts now, I'm like, oh, you know, I, I don't have to cut out all of this description or I don't have to. One of the big things that I used to do in first drafts was I would have dialogue tags on all of the dialogue. And I train myself now that I don't need all of those dialogue texts. So, you know, I used to have to go through and do a pass, an editing pass, where I would cut out, you know, as many dialogue tags as I possibly could. And uh, now I don't have to do that because I'm, I'm doing it while I'm writing. I'm, I'm not pausing and saying he, sh- he said and she said and, you know, all of that. The more that I edit, the more I realize, or at least unconsciously realize, I don't need certain things in my own writing. And I've been cutting that out as I write, instead of cutting it out later. (laughs) That kind of adds to the advice that we've heard before of read more. If you want to write, you should definitely read more stories and how other people construct it and... And I love that you've set yourself up in a situation where you get this constant wide variety of creativity flooding your inbox. Yes. And I would say that's the first step is, is I, honestly, that's what I think when everybody spouts this, you know, write what you know. I really don't think that means, you know, if you're, if you're a mathematician that you have to write about mathematics. Uh, granted, that's what I'm doing now, but... <laughs> But I think what write what you know means is write what you read. If you have read tons and tons and tons of fantasy, then you know what's out there. You know what's already on the shelf. You know what's cliche and what's trope and all that kind of stuff because you've done all of this reading. And so you should write fantasy because you should be able to find something that's different and unique for your writing that's going to add to the fantasy genre. But I also think reading is just the first step. I think uh, another valuable step uh, along the way is to basically critique other people's writing, newbie writing. Because one of the things I did while I was getting my master's degree is I was part of an online critique group. And I think that helped me tremendously. If you approach it, say, if you approach it seriously. Positively and seriously. <laughs> yeah. yeah, positively and seriously. If you approach it with the idea that you are, you're not there to correct commas and to correct spelling, that that's, you know, do that along the way, but that's not the point. When you're, when you're critiquing, you should be critiquing things like, okay, you know, I read this uh, story and I kind of like this, but I don't like this. And you have to literally sit down and say, okay, why do I not like this? Like, what, what is it about this in the story that, that I don't like and why is it happening? And if you approach your critique that way and try to get across to the author that the story isn't working for you because of this, then you're going to end up going back to your own writing and saying, well, okay, I, I better not do that in my own writing. And, uh, and I think if you analyze other people's writings in both directions not just why didn't this work but like i really love this like how did they do that and then let the author know you know this this really worked here's why i think it works so well if you do that when you're critiquing then you're going to apply all of that stuff to your own writing and i i spent i don't even know how many hours on this online writing group critiquing other people's stories and i think it improved my uh, writing tremendously 
I, there's a lot of folks. Karen and I both swear by the writing group, but Chaz is on the other side of of the the ivory tower. So I am. I just yeah. You know, I just want to be alone with my keyboard, and I write. Well, I used to write everything through, and then my agent was the first person to see it, and my editor would be the second. These days, having a wife and everything, Karen is the first person to see everything. <laughs> then my agent gets it, and then. So on and so forth. But I, yeah, I don't, critiquing makes me really uncomfortable. I'm really bad at it. I don't like telling people why their story doesn't work. It's not, you know, I, 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 I just don't, I don't enjoy it. I don't find it helpful for, I mean, yeah, you present a story to a critiquing group and there's five other people and you get five different opinions. And I don't see how that's useful because... Well, you know, how do you judge this, but not that? Well, that's part of the part of the of the process when you're when people are critiquing your own stuff. Of course, you're going to get different opinions. But what you have to train yourself to do is to basically analyze what they're saying and say you have you have to be able to train yourself to say I agree with this, I don't agree with this, and and let the stuff you don't agree with, go. Yeah. I mean, like formal critiquing groups. Like the reason I ended up meeting Chaz was I went to Milford, the Mil- which is a, which is a critique, one week long uh, critiquing session to get in. You must have sold at least had one professional sale, spend a week in Wales within sight of Mount Snowden, but f- fewer than 20 people, but like 10, 10 to 15 people, you read two of your stories and you get you get feedback that way and it's a it's a great place it's just a great place to relax and be and since you're very concentrated you're there's nothing else in notley in wales except a, a, a an old shale you know dead shale mine it, it's horrible but so there's nothing else to do and i have found that kind of setting extremely extremely useful which is why I went twice. And I can't guarantee that you will meet your husband through that method for everybody. <laughs> well, I, 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 and I think this just emphasizes that, you know, not everything is going to work for everybody, you know? So I found the critiquing very helpful, but, uh, you know, obviously Chaz doesn't find the critiquing uh, as helpful for him. So, and everybody's different, you know? So, Everybody should take any advice that you ever hear about writing, you know, with a grain of salt and, and decide, essentially decide whether it works for you or it doesn't. Yeah, I, I loved the Mystery Writer's Handbook for that because they'd ask a question and they'd ask 25 writers and get 25 wildly different answers to every question. And I think that ought to be encouraging out there to new writers to say, well, you can have your vision and you can hang it out there and you can stubbornly, but sometimes it's nice to have somebody read it and say, I don't get it. Because then you can say, are they your target market or are they not your target market? And like, if I write something with horror, death and dismemberment, I can have, you know, the kind and gentle, lovely people like Karen say, well, I'm not your target audience, but here's what I think versus, oh yeah, baby, bring me that blood and violence. (laughs) It's, as my husband says, I see you've killed another child. <laughs> well, my, my mother was a, a, a college professor. She taught English and she would, I would, and I would bring her my early 
terrible, you know, little kid kind of stories um, of science fiction. And she would be very polite and kind of just, you know, I don't understand. And many years later, she um, she co-taught a class with uh, Brian Atterbury, who was who they were in the same department and on genre fiction. And so she sat in on him teaching science fiction. And afterwards, she said, oh, I finally understand what you were doing. I, 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 you know, I didn't, I couldn't see why you would be writing such horrible things because I, you know, I thought you were smart. <laughs> so anyway, part of the, part of the uh, benefits, I guess, of listening to other people critiquing your stuff and, and kind of learning, you know, when the, when the, when to say, oh, they have a point and when to say, no, I don't agree with them. I'm just going to ignore that is this going to happen when you hit your editor in the long run, because your editor is going to say, I think you need to change this. And I think you need to do this and, and fix this. And, uh, you know, fixing, you, you never end up fixing everything that they bring up because you're going to, you're going to have to at some point say to your editor, you know, no, I really think this needs to stay the way it is. And, and I think that's kind of just prepping you for that, for the idea that, you know, you can say no to your editor about certain things. And, but you, to bring it all back around to the final view of it, it's a question of, are you writing it for yourself or are you writing it for an audience that the editor knows how to work for? Because when it's sooner or later, if you start saying, I really want to get paid for this, it's, you got to be a pro and accept input. So, and that's there for some people, only my editor. And that's sort of what Chaz just told us, whereas I like your point of view is looking at from everybody. So it can work either way, I think. You can, you can never say no to everything. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I am all about trusting the professionals. I mean, I once, I once read a book which had two alternating points of view, a boy and a girl, as it happens, though they, they were not romantic. And my agent made me rewrite all the boys' sections, and then he sent it to the editor, who made me rewrite all the girls' sections. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. So uh, yeah, as a final note, Deb, what is your advice to young writers starting out there, Joshua? That, well, we covered some of it earlier. You know, you got to read. Okay, make sure you're reading. And, and even like I said earlier, when I was uh, thinking about setting up my small press, I started reading anthologies when I realized I didn't really know how to write short stories. So I started reading anthologies and uh, figuring out what it was that worked and didn't work for uh, short stories and anthologies in general. So, you know, you gotta read, find out, you know, experiment and find out what works for you best for, for writing. If you're writing just for yourself, then whatever you write is, is great. It's perfect. If you're trying to submit and get published and stuff like that, then you have to submit. At some point, you just got to say, okay, I'm going to send this out. And you have to. Oh my God, I need that on a t shirt. If you submit, you must submit. (laughs) But I mean, you you have to get over this idea that a rejection is this horrible, horrible, nasty thing. And a rejection just means that that particular story didn't work for that particular market or that editor at that time. If it's not. It's, it is not a condemnation of what you have written. And it's certainly never a condemnation of the individual writer. So keep writing out there, folks. Yes, definitely. You got, if you want to be a writer, you got to write. <laughs> thank, 
Thanks so much for being with us today, Jeshun. Uh, well, thank you guys for having me. This is uh, great fun. We will put links to all this stuff and Joshua's website and Zombie Need Brains on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support is by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Maid Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with the Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsor is Eternally Jack L Designs. And hey, thanks for listening out there. Thank you.